Hello, I'm Amelia Rankert-Thomas, and welcome to More at Stake, the family business podcast. Today, we are so pleased to welcome well-known family business consultant, professor, family therapist, and my friend, Dennis Jaffe. Dennis is here to talk with us about his latest publication, Governing the Family Enterprise, the Evolution of Family Councils, Assemblies, and Constitutions. Dennis, welcome to More at Stake. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Amy. So, Dennis, this family is about gen. Oh, sorry, this publication is about generative families. What do you mean by the term generative? Well, I come from a, a, a tradition um, in sociology where we don't uh, just look at the average family. What I'm trying to do is looking at the families that are uh, really the models for others, the, the best. Uh, Achievers And the idea of a generative family is a family that's adding value and acting as a creative force, not just um, being, uh, you know, kind of taking over the business and, and running it, but really creatively engaging itself as a family, as a business, adapting and um, adding value through the generations, not just uh, uh, using it up and maintaining it. So I really want to want to interview the most outstanding families, not the average family. And and this was, I mean, you, you bring up that you wanted to interview these families. This was a very extensive study that you and your team undertook. Mm-hmm. How did you identify families and, and what was the interview process that you used? Well, we were very lucky at the start. We had two wonderful sponsors, the Family Office Exchange and um, the um, uh, uh, Family Business Network. Um, and both of them are global networks of uh, very successful families, and each of them introduced us and and uh, helped us um, you know, get to families, and then um, <clears throat> and then since then we've uh, relied on um, uh, referrals and um, each of uh, the members of the research team. There are ten of us um, going out, and when we see a family or hear or meet a family um, that meets our criteria, which are very simple, it's a large business. Um, over about uh, 200 million or so in in value, it's a family that's been together in the th- into the third generation or beyond, and it's it's kept an identity as a family. So those are our three criteria, and um, uh, to date we've um, interviewed over 80, and um, our hope is in the next year that we'll have uh, be able to say we've uh, interviewed 100 100 year families. Wow! Wow! Um- how long are these interviews typically? The interviews are typically about an hour and a half, and um, we get a uh, we we uh, usually talk to a family leader that's from the next generation. Um, but um, sometimes, for about uh, a third or of the families, we we get two people from two different generations. Um, so they're they're intensive, and and we really get uh, try to get the stories. Um, we're not trying to get, uh, for example, to hear about do they have a family council, but what we're really interested in is how did the family council get started? How did it evolve? Why did they start it? How does it work? And um, we're, we're looking at the the, the story uh, of the operations rather than um, uh, whether they exist or not. Well, and to that point, you write about generative families needing to attract each emerging generation member to contribute. And you say that these families use governance to invite them in. Can you talk to us a little about how that works? 
Well, yeah. So, so there's particularly in the second generation, there, there's a kind of a narrative that that emerges in families, and somehow the older generation is saying we're going to decide who we want as our successor, and um, and and uh, uh, how family members should get in. And and what we see in the third generation, um, it, particularly the most talented people, there, there's um, often 30, 40, uh, 60, 80 people in a family, uh, uh, relatives and uh, married ins. The, um, the, the, the people that have talent, people have different talents, they're wealthy, they have other options and opportunities in life. And so the challenge is not to see who should come in, but to uh, attract family members to stay connected to the family, to feel a sense of pride, a sense of excitement about it, and to see that the creative work that they can do uh, outside the family is, is, is wonderful, but they can also make a choice to be in the family, and the family, in, in effect, has to recruit the next generation to be leaders and to be involved uh, rather than uh, decide who they want. And, and sometimes uh, I, I see in a family, well, the family um, has, uh, gets the people, the people that want to be involved and the people that the family would like to be involved, the most creative and, and, and uh, talented people, are different. So the people that are there are not the people that should be there. Well, and that's that's a really interesting point. Um, you, you know, we we talk a lot about next gens, and I think actually when we're talking about generative families, that term takes on an entirely new meaning. But how do these generative families help their next gens become active rather than passive? I mean, you're talking about really inviting everyone, and most especially the most talented of the next generation, to participate. How does that work for them? Well, let me kind of, you know, talk about, you know, kind of a number of the families that are where they have third and fourth generation um, uh, kind of groups that are active. And um, first of all, um, they're, when they're in third generation, they have to know each other. So the family members have to make an attempt, even if people live all over the place. And, and some of these families have people living in uh, um, half a dozen different countries and even speaking different languages at home. Um, so it, the first challenge is the family members have to know each other and um, feel a personal connection to each other. Um, and then they, they need to learn about the business. They need to have opportunities, um, internships, uh, briefings, uh, visits, gatherings, ways to learn about the business. Um, then there, there needs to be a, a candid and honest discussion about um, what's the business doing and what kind of opportunities does it present? Um, and, and by the third generation, it isn't about who's going to run the business. That's an owner-operator kind of question. The things that uh, the third generation talks about is um, how do we get stewards? We need people to uh, work in, in um, helping the family get together, getting family gatherings, family education. We need, to, um, we need people on boards. We need people to be in the foundation. And, and very often, it's um, uh, not very often, almost all the time, the, the number of uh, positions that, 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 ha that the next generation has to fill is, um, is rather large. And so the, uh, the, you're not trying to get one person, you're trying to get a cadre of leaders. And to make that cadre of leaders um, contain more of the next generation um, than, uh, um, uh, than just a handful. Because the, if it's just a handful, and uh, a lot of the positions, uh, they're, they're working in a family governance, 
and they have outside jobs, or they have young children, it, it can, um, uh, family members can burn out. So the family has to renew um, people and have other people, uh, more than one uh, or a handful of people in leadership. So what we find is that the generative families make an investment in the family. They, they see family development as a, um, not a cost, but a resource that they need to develop. And um, if you were to ask the question, third generation um, family, how much are you spending to develop the next generation, to bring them together, to have meetings, to create entities, to um, uh, do education programs? And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a fairly large amount of money. Uh, having a family office have, that that uh, brings people together. So there's a, there's a lot of um, investment in the next generation. It isn't about what they're going to get, but about how does the family invest in the next generation as a creative resource. Well, and I think that um, that shift from thinking about succession as who's going to run the business to thinking about it as you know, how are we going to deploy all of the human capital in our family in a way that strengthens everything we do, you know, in a sense, turns us into a family enterprise? Um, would you say that that's one of the characteristics of these gener generative families? Right. Well, we say that, that there's two decisions. And the first decision that the family makes is to um, create a successful business. And that, that's been done um, and then the next generation, or, or sometimes it's even the third generation, has to make uh, an, uh, a decision to invest in family. Because um, by the third generation, um, everybody, um, anybody in the family can say, well, I, I'm, I'm not interested. And mm -hmm. um, they, may make, they may get a distribution. They may uh, be a, an in, uh, a trust beneficiary. But they basically can choose not to be involved. Or they can say, um, our family has a lot in common. We have a legacy. We have things that we're doing together, um, social action, um, philanthropy, um, the things that our business does, our relations to the community. Um, there are many things we can do together. And the family members have to say, I, we can do something together as a family that's more interesting to me and more meaningful to me than whatever I can do on my own. So I'm going to dedicate some of my life energy and some of my focus to things with the family. And that's a decision that every individual in third, fourth generation has to make. Um, do I want to invest time and energy in the family? So you, you emphasize the importance, we've been talking a little bit about governance, but you emphasize the importance of governance building blocks, and you yeah. cite the family assembly, the family council, and either a protocol, charter, or a constitution. Would you take a moment for us to explain why all three of those are important? Yeah, so um, these, are, these are not usual families. A third uh, or fourth generation family enterprise is very complicated and has a lot of resources. They have sometimes a legacy business. About half of the families in our study still own their legacy business um, that they have to look over. They have other businesses. They have investments. They have real estate. They have a foundation. They have a family office. And they have a lot of people that need to be uh, informed and engaged. So, um, and, and, and a lot of these things have nothing to do with the business. So 
the family has to get together and talk about these things. And after they get together, they have to say, well, we have some ongoing activities that we want to do. We want to get together. We want to plan educational things. We want to oversee the business. We want to develop board members and family members who know what they're doing and are, and are responsible to the family. And there's a lot of work to do. And that is not business. That's family work. And so family work has to be organized. And if the family organizes its work and uh, creates different kinds of councils and committees, then you have a family council. And that's family governance. Uh, then it has to be separated from the business governance, which has to do with the oversight of, of, of business, of investments, of uh, uh, assets, um, where you need to uh, have a board. And sometimes the owners uh, appoint board members, but all of the owners can't be part of it. So that there's a business organization and governance for the business. Um, and then the two, the business governance and the family governance, uh, which evolve naturally, need to coordinate. So there needs to be a formal organization. And then um, the way I talk about the family constitution is it's not an independent uh, uh, event. When you create it and begin to get together as a family and you begin to do f business governance and you have all these entities, someone has to write down what the rules are. Someone has to write down who's in the family council. What does it do? How are board members appointed? Um, what are they responsible for? What is the board telling the business in terms of oversight? And uh, what is this? Uh, what are we investing in? What are we doing as a family? And um, and all those things together create a lot of uh, agreements and policies and values, and that's the constitution. And so, um, by looking at these families as evolving over three generations, and how did it start? You see that family governance and uh, the governance structure starts maybe in the second generation, third generation with some regular family meetings, maybe an annual family business meeting um, of the whole family together, which we call now a family assembly. But it, it just starts by getting together uh, every summer. So there's a kind of an organic development. And to me, the Constitution doesn't have any meaning if there's nobody to make it happen. And the family council and family boards can't operate unless they have some policies and a uh, written agreement about what they're doing. So to me, the, the council um, and the boards are the governance and the constitution um, are kind of yin and yang because um, the family just grows organically. So when a family says, well, should we have a constitution? First of all, you say, well, well, let's say you have shareholders agreements, do you have trusts, uh, how do family members understand it, do family members get together, and, and there's a lot of uh, things that you have to write down that are there already. Um, and then you say, well, well what, else, um, what else do we need to organize, or what else might the family have to make things run more smoothly and to help people stay in touch and to help people grow together and to help people find common ground? What creative things could we do as a family? And so there, there's a kind of an organic development that, that I think that people, um, uh, when they regard constitution as, as a function, um, that, that, they, um, that they're really missing. 
Well, I think I think that's a really good point because I've seen so many constitutions and they tend to have been written during a certain era that are really top-down sorts of documents, the kind of, you know, this is what you have to do in order to be a member of this family, very um, almost sort of dictatorial. But it doesn't sound to me like that's the sort of document you're describing. You're describing something more like a really well-organized operating system that puts in writing all the information that people need in order to navigate this much more complex structure. Right. I mean, it, 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 a, first of all, um, the Constitution has to reflect the legal agreement. So if the family has, a, um, has an operating business, there's, a, um, there's a, an owner's agreement. Um, there's a shareholder's agreement. Um, and most of the time, because it's written in a great legal document, young family members that are growing up don't understand it. If there's a trust um, the, it, it, so the constitution to me begins with an education about what are the things that, that you have to understand as a growing member of this family to be responsible. Um, and then out of the education, you say, well, these are some things we have to write down so that you understand them. Here's some principles. Um, and it, it, it kind of, there's an organicness to it. And I, I always, I, I, Somebody in, in the interview said, well, you can't outsource um, engagement, um, so you mm. can't have uh, people write a constitution. Uh, other, uh, you have, can have people help you, but the constitution really has to come out of a group, and um, for want of a better word, that's, that's something like a family council um, writing it. So I, I've had some families um, say, uh, um, well, we had somebody... Uh, that helped that wrote a constitution for us or helped us write a constitution and then we had to sell it to the family and and uh, um, and then the real uh, work and engagement of the family began when they came in with a, this this supposed constitution and people started looking at it and say well what about this and mm. what about that and I don't like that and that that make, that doesn't make any sense to me and um, that's not fair and uh, everybody's sitting in the room together and there's 30, 40, 50 people and they're yelling and arguing. And then someone says, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's organize this. Let's, let's get a group of people to kind of say, what are the issues? Let's hear from the different family groups, the different family branches, what they want. Let's get this organized. And, and, um, and then the governance begins to become clearer. So it's, you're describing something that, first of all, is evolving, and it's participative and collaborative, and people are really looking for um, ongoing engagement of everybody in the family to get it right. And, and you don't, and, it, and ongoing engagement, you know, doesn't mean it's one meeting, and it doesn't necessarily mean if you're a third generation, it has to be 80 people sitting down in a room um, you know, with, with 80 pens. Um, there has to be um, some representative groups, some smaller groups, but they, they need to meet and then inform and get feedback and then come back. And so it's really each of the things that people talk about, what I, what I like about the, the way we've done the research is we, we understand and hear from the families, not just how they got what they have, but how they got there. 
Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what did they do first? First, they had a two-page agreement. Then the next generation grew up, and 20 years later, there was, you know, dozens more people and family branches, and people lived all over the place. And they looked at the three-page document, and they said, well, that's nice, but most of it doesn't really apply anymore. It's much more, we, have, we, need, more, uh, we need more detail. We need more um, organization than, than we have. And so they write, they, they revise it. And uh, most of the constitutions in the, the people that we um, interviewed, and, and most of them did have, um, almost all of them had a constitution, um, but they, they revised it every, at least every uh, you know, 10 or 15 years, and, and they added new policies and redefined policies and, and um, changed policies. For example, some families start off and say, well, if you're married in, you can't be in the family business and you can't be on the family council. And, um, and then 10 or 20 years later, some of the families have these, these wonderful people that have married in and been part of the family for 30 years. And they say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and then they say, well, we have to, we can change that policy. Um, and um, they make changes. So, so we're talking a lot um, here about these families being very engaged. And one of the challenges that I've seen sometimes with G2 groups is that one member of the generation was the leader of the business and the family, and his or her siblings are kind of content to follow along and leave most of the leadership work to that one person. That doesn't sound like a great model for these G3, G4, G5, and beyond families, how do they get those G2s involved? And is it even possible to become a generative family if you don't get those G2s involved? Well, so, so I mean, uh, what, what you see is that something has to awaken the family. And, and it, it, that is a, it's a nice, comfortable thing. But, but to me, it's a very um, unproductive and uncreative way if you have 20 family members and 19 of them are doing nothing and not, not engaged in the family at all. And one person has all the responsibility. Um, that person, um, doesn't do well. Um, first of all, um, they're asked to do family things, but they have, they're so, their hands are so full running a business that they begin, they just can't do the family things. And so somebody has to emerge in the family, and often it's a member of the, the G3 that just um, kind of stands up and says, you know, um, you, Cousin Joe or Uncle Joe, um, you're, you've got enough on your plate. Let me kind of be, begin to plan the family meeting and, and pull things together. And so, so the, the, uh, sometimes uh, the younger generation, uh, not some, more than sometimes, uh, frequently the younger generation takes initiative and begins to say, you know, um, it's nice to have a family leader, but um, the third generation is going to do things differently, and we need to have several people. And so they'll pull together a family meeting, they'll create a family council, um, they'll talk about um, the next person who runs the business. Is it going to be a family member, non-family member? Um, Are family members going to be on the board? and active, even if a family member is running the business, um, isn't there a need 
for family members to be overseeing and, and talking about um, their values and goals and what they want from the business. Um, sometimes the family wants to start a foundation and, uh, or they want to do some, uh, they, they begin to take money uh, from the business and create investments. And they begin to say, well, gee, is the person who's running the business, should they by default be in charge of everything? So it gets more complicated and somebody in the family has to notice that things are more complicated and, um, and then begin to bring in uh, more of a group, uh, group governance rather than individual governance. So that may be the second generation has one person, but the third generation very quickly discovers that model uh, is, is not transferable. Yeah. There has to be a it new model uh, in the them. third and fourth generation. So these are, are really remarkable families, um, but this is not a remarkably easy process to become one of these families. So can you tell us some of the particularly complex issues that you've found these families have struggled with? Well, I, I, I mean, I think the, the, the issues that they, they, they've, they've struggled with, uh, first of all, uh, have to do with the diversity of ideas in the third generation. And um, there may be unanimity in the second generation, but um, uh, they're, they're, the things that they're doing in the second generation ju don't just duplicate into the third generation. So the, the third generation has to, for example, ask, um, develop a policy sometimes for somebody in the family that, that doesn't want to be part of it. In, if you have a third generation and um, sex, uh, the second generation was was three or four siblings, um, and then the next generation has a dozen people, the chances are that at least one of those people will just not see, not be very interested in the family business. And so they'll be um, saying, well, well, do I have to be part of this business? Could I sell my shares? And so the question of exit comes up. Um, the question of um, uh, how do we, um, how do we, fairly deal with all the different ideas that people have. Um, some of the families, for example, with the third generation, um, some of the people in the family say, well, you know, uh, we want to deal with uh, sustainability and environmental issues, and, and we want to look at what our business is doing. And, uh, um, and uh, you know, we, we have some questions. Or as we have a family office, we want to be investing in um, uh, in a sustainable way with the needs of the two generations in the future um, uh, represented. How are we going to do that? Um, so there, there's, a, um, there's, there's a lot of questions that emerge in the third generation, and I think that, that sometimes the second generation has a kind of a denial and a kind of a, either they don't know the issues or they don't think the issues have to be addressed, or they say, well, we'll, we'll deal with that later. And, um, and, and it's the third generation that has to start to get together and say, uh, we want you to deal with these issues now. We want to be involved. We want to be informed. And um, there, there's a kind of a innovation from below um, that may not be comfortable but in the, the generative families, there, there's, um, I would say, that the, the older generation 
is respectful of those rumblings and um, and they they listen and they uh, uh, provide a voice uh, and a, and a pathway to talk about the issues to the third generation. Well, and you you write about um, to that point generations needing to dialogue together and to blend their visions into what you call a learning system. Right. Can you tell us a little more about what you mean by learning system. Well, a learning system is is a, it's it's um, uh, is where the system itself is able to question and to say um, we want to be doing we not we, not are we not just um, who's going to do these things but are we doing the right things and so I, I think it's a learning system when the, the younger generation is brought in not with the mindset that we're going to inform them and we're going to tell them what to do and then they're going to do it but with the idea that, that the younger generation, um, most younger generations of families have more education than their parents. In this generation, the younger generation are digital natives. They know uh, things. They've often traveled around the world. They've experienced different cultures. And so in a learning system, the uh, older generation is saying, you know, it isn't that we have to just tell the next generation what to do and teach them, we have to listen to them and, um, and, and, and hear their new ideas. We, we've spent all this money to educate them. They've traveled. They've worked outside the business. They've worked all over the world. They've, they've seen social enterprises. Um, they know about digital things that we don't even have the faintest idea about. <laughs> now, now we better li- listen to them. And this is listening to the next generation as a parent. I know this very well. It's not mean giving them a blank check, but it means um, uh, being open to their ideas and and actually learning something yourself as an elder. So I think that these 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 families are learning systems because they get the 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 younger generation begins to get together and begins to say not just um, uh, here's. Um, uh, what what you want to teach us, and we're learning it, but also says we have some ideas of our own. And uh, by the way, um, you in the second generation need to be doing some learning yourselves. So I, I think the learning system is one where the the older generation is learning as well as the younger generation. And they they don't they don't create a system so much as they become a learning system. It sounds like exactly. And they have to do a lot of things, and, and that's what um, I did a study, um, actually, of Asian families, um, which was very, uh, uh, very telling, where um, 90% of the, the Asian families wanted to pass it on to the next generation. And then we said, well, how many, how, how many of you are actually working to plan it? And only 20% of them were. And so the question that we had to ask was, what are the 70% of the people in the study doing of a couple hundred families um, that want to pass it on, but they're not doing any planning? And uh, the answer is there's there's some kind of magical thinking, <laughs> and they're not doing anything. Whereas in, in uh, the generative families, um, they're actually uh, uh, beginning to address the issues before they happen. So if you want to have a generational shift of power, and the third generation is going to take over, presumably, when they're in their 40s. 
um, and begin to take on chairmanships and be major roles and boards and oversight. Um, then you have to begin the learning process much, much earlier when they're uh, before they go to college. I think you make a, a really good point. These um, international complex legal structures, trust structures um, with different tiers of ownership and family offices, this is very different than the old system of primogeniture. And I can imagine that it's, it has been tough for these generative families to adapt to really a, a much more sophisticated reality that brings with it a lot of challenges of adaptation. One of the families, um, European family, said, well, we're 15 generations old, and everything has been really great for 14 generations. The oldest son took over, um, the business didn't change, the markets were the same, we made money, everybody was happy. Um, and then the last 15 years, we've had more change than previous 14 generations. And what's happening is the, the, the very nice um, orderly ways that families do succession um, are assuming that it's the same business, um, that one person will inherit it, they will provide for the other family members, but the other family members um, may get involved in lesser roles or will go off and do their own. And there's a very great kind of social order, um, which goes very well when there's stability. Uh, when there's great change, uh, when um, social norms are changing, every one of the families um, in our study, and that's 80, um, has some way in which they're taking seriously, for example, um, gender and saying that um, women should have some uh, equality in terms of participating in governance and, and even in, in the business. And um, one family, a Middle Eastern family, for example, um, they said, well, this is the fourth generation. I think uh, the women in the family were very, very well-educated professionals. They were bankers. They were lawyers. They were, um, in addition to <clears throat> raising children. And so the family was saying, well, gee, we should get them into the business. We, why should they be outside working for other people? And then they pointed out, well, the business has never had a female executive, so it's going to be very hard for female in the family to kind of move into leadership if they've never had a woman executive. And they said, well, we have to you know, work on that. And so the family um, decided, the third generation family group said, well, um, what we're going to do is now work, think 20 years ahead and make sure that this business is a place where our daughters can work as well as our sons. And they realized that the third generation, it wasn't going to happen. They had talented and capable women, but it was not realistic for them to be in the business. But they were going to work, and it was going to be a long process to make sure that the next generation had that equality. So um, uh, there's a lot of work to be done to create the, the innovation. And, um, and I think the, the generative families are aware of the enormity of the things that they have to do. And they say, because what we have is so wonderful, we can really, we're really willing to put in the work to make it happen. So, so do you think, I mean, what, what really comes across both from your book and from this talk is the, 
tremendous effort that these families are expending to be inclusive and engaged and to move forward together. Are there any downsides that they report or that you've observed to being a member of a generative family? I don't know that I call it a downside because, um, but but the the fact is that um, it's very very difficult um, for people to allocate the time and energy and um, and work in um, in the family, and the family has to um, spend a lot of time accommodating the voices. Sometimes there are uh, tough uh, tough choices to be made. For example, about social responsibility. Some people say, well. Are um, we're we're in the uh, in the um, the oil business or, or some business, and uh, we're not going to get out of that. How are we going to deal with um, uh, ecological and environmental concerns? And uh, so the the downside is they have to do a lot of work, and people have to be prepared to be engaged. They can't just let it happen. Um, sometimes um, you know, sometimes uh, well, the the family. <clears throat> decides that they don't want to be together. They don't have a common ground. They're they're too dispersed. Um, and two of the families in the study that were huge, moving into the fourth, fifth generation, they had um, each one had had a, you know like five and seven different family branches, and both of them broke down into five separate family offices for each of the branches. Um, some of the branches then combined, but basically there was a there was a splitting process, and, and there was a process of family members saying, uh, having to say, do we really want to be involved together? Is this uh, is this something that we want to do? And to that point, do you think there is an upper limit to how large one of these groups can be and still function effectively? What was the range of sizes that well, you saw? Well, the, the, the largest one um, had several hundred uh, people in the sixth generation, um, and they were finding they're they're finding it hard. I think when you get up to that length, um, it isn't a it isn't a family anymore. It's it's a it's it's more or less. And it, it's not a village because the people live all over the place. It's it's a large confederation, and um, there there uh, there's a you know there are a lot of people um, don't want to be part of it, and uh, they want to exit, and so the family shrinks itself by um, allowing people to cash out, or the the process of uh, just splitting and and letting family branches go off. I think the fourth generation. Is a it's a real question because there's there's over a hundred people about whether um, it makes sense to be one entity anymore. Well, and I think that's a, actually a positive. You know, you know, some of those stories are told um, in, in the press as a negative thing. Oh, this family split up. But you right. know, for a one large very large generative family to become several generative families may be a great thing. It um, makes non, that. Uh, yeah. I mean, a, a, you know, a, a non us, you know, mega family that was in the study. Um, this is the one that had the, um, it had um, uh, six or seven uh, family branches and they decided amicably to split into the, 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 the six branches and they're all members of this one family. So they have that heritage 
and every five or seven years they get together and have a mega you know family gathering but then each of the branches have created its own family office and they have different themes and and one's in a different country um than the other six and um, they, they're, um, uh, and they're, they're allowing a lot of diversity and they're finding it very liberating, um, for these families to be broken into units of about, you know, like, like, you know, less than a hundred family members than a thousand family members. So you mentioned, um, exit hop, exits that, that some of these family members had, um, done. And, and as you looked at these different families, were there any exit options that the families you've interviewed had developed that surprised you? Well, here's the, the surprise is that that a hundred percent of the families had an exit policy, which means that if you were a member of that family, you had a free choice to say, I don't want to be part of this. Um, so that was a big surprise is that there was a uh, almost uh, in all cases, there was an exit policy. Because when you get to the third generation, there is going to be somebody that has a perfectly good reason for saying, I don't want to be part of this. Um, sometimes they've moved to another country. Um, uh, sometimes they're, they're saying, well, gee, um, I'm living in a different place. And the family you know, has a real estate business in a large city, but I live in a little small town in another country. And, um, and I would like to be in the real estate business in my little town. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I will sacrifice some wealth <coughs> if I sell my share. But again, I'll be in charge of uh, my own entity and, and uh, uh, do it on my own. So, so that's the kind of a person that would say, I want to cash out. Not that I don't care about the family and not that I don't respect the legacy of what we've done. But, but, uh, but I'm a small town person and I want to have my own little business. So one of the things that I really love about this study and the the other um, reports that you've done is that it's clear that these families are, are all different and they're all fascinating. What is it about them that really intrigues you that that has led you to do so many studies about this cohort that keeps getting larger? Well, I think the, the, the thing that I marvel at is, is I, I love to read novels and um, about families and, uh, um, you know, uh, things like Buden, uh, Budenbrook's um, wonderful stories, but they're all a little bit tragic. And, uh, um, and so what I love is, is to hear the stories of families that are, that are not boring, but they're not tragedies. Um, these are stories of, of building. And, and I, I'm beginning to um, be really excited about the fact that uh, um, these families control, one family controls 20% of the, 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 the product, the gross national product of their nation. Wow. And this is a third generation family. And they are having a, um, a tremendous, they, they've had a tremendous impact on their country and they're continuing to. And, and these families are doing in incredible things in in the world making incredible things happen um, uh, one family is creating a whole um, a whole uh, water system for the largest uh, for a large city um, and they're underwriting the the water system as a, a business 
but also as a social investment in the country. They're doing wonderful things, and the families um, that are successful, the generous families, are doing them collectively. And the idea that, that over the third or fourth generation, you don't become selfish and just obsessed with um, consumption. Um, sure, there are, there are people who, who do, but the family maintains an ethic of responsibility, creativity, giving back, uh, supporting each other. There's a kind of an altruism in wealth um, that I think is tremendously important for the world. And, uh, and that's what excites me about doing this. I love it. So can you give us a sneak preview of your next study, which I understand is on business governance? Well, so, so this one, um, this study was looking at family governance, and we, it was a little section on how does the family owners relate to the business, but it didn't, uh, uh, half of it was done. It didn't um, deal with the um, uh, how do you, how can businesses be innovative, how can families uh, be selling the legacy business and still maintain their identity. So there was a lot of areas where the family is relating to the business that we just didn't have time for. Um, and so we're going to continue it. Um, in each of these, the um, uh, papers that we write, we have about 10 or 20 case studies um, where we talk about the particulars and then we, we talk about the themes and the, the different challenges that they do. So the next one is going to be about business governance. And then the one after that is going to be about social responsibility and uh, philanthropy. Well, we will certainly look forward to having you back to talk with us about those as well. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your findings, your insights, and your wisdom. And listeners, if you're interested in getting a copy of Dennis's reports, you can search for Governing the Family Enterprise on Amazon.com. It's available both electronically and in print. Uh, we recommend it highly. You've been listening to More at Stake, the family business podcast. As always, we encourage you to contact us at office at moreatstake.com or through our website at moreatstake.com. Thanks again.